0: Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us, versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. On this episode of the School of Unlearning, I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Andre Nakayama. Andre has become a big deal in the world of functional medicine. As a nutritionist who can help chronically ill people get better when no one else can, her clinical skills have won her the attention of many world-renowned doctors who consult with her in their very own difficult cases. More than that, Andrea trains thousands of practitioners every year in how to have the same clinical success she's had. She's training an army of change makers in the field of healthcare. Those triumphs came out of Andrea's own tragedy when her young husband was diagnosed with a fatal brain tumor while she was pregnant with their only child. I was drawn to Andrea's work over a decade ago when I was studying to become a health coach. Little did I know the course I was about to sign up for, the digestive intensive, would change the way I viewed healthcare, problem solving and also begin a friendship that would see me through my own personal and professional celebrations and challenges. This episode my friends is real. It's raw and it's brimming with insight and vulnerability. Here we go Hi Andrea welcome to the School of Unlearning. Thank you Elisa I'm so glad to be here with you. I'm so glad to see you virtually. Um, you look radiant as always and oh. I I was saying before <laughs> but I do wish I do wish we could be in person but I know one day we will be soon so absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm so stoked. You know, when I thought about launching the School of Unlearning podcast, you were one of the first five people I thought of. And, um, you know, your influence, I think it's been over a decade now, me being a student and a mentor or mentee of yours. And um, yeah, I think I saw you when I was living in Hong Kong and I saw, you know, Full Body Systems launch and it was like 2011, maybe. And uh So automatically I just said, okay, like I need to take her courses. I need to learn from this woman. And ever since then, it's been this really cool, unpredictable roller coaster of like paths crossing and learning and growing and sort of like convergent paths. So again, I just want to say thank you and also welcome. Like I can't wait to dive into some really juicy topics with you today. Yeah,
1: I always love talking about the juicy topics and we have been on a roller coaster of a journey together. And I know you say that I was your mentor, you were my mentee, and I think the best students are those who also teach me what I need to learn. And you've definitely been one of those people in my life. So I'm excited about this venture of yours.
0: Thank you. So I actually think about this, too, as I think about the school of unlearning. There's a few people in my life who've been instrumental in helping me see really big, complex pictures and break them down and connect the dots. I know that's something you do really well. A few of my basketball coaches growing up, my college basketball coach was great at this, you know, taking a fast paced game with people who are six foot two, six foot three. I was this five foot four little player. I had to find a way to use strategy and emotions to get to an end goal with my teammates at a very young age. And and then I, you know, I got into nutrition and I started to learn from you. And I started to think about how on earth could I connect the dots between really complex conditions, um, Hashimoto's, diabetes, yeah. um, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, concerns and, and uh, you really helped me break it down. And so I've always sort of looked up to you in that way of not only being an educator, um, but I would consider to be the first and foremost thing is a storyteller. Um, mm. and, I think, and I think we both know where this goes. It goes back to childhood and our how we're raised. So I would just love to know, what was life for you growing up as a kid? And um, how did that shape the way that you viewed people and stories? Yeah,
1: what a great question. And thank you for those reflections. Um, You know, I definitely didn't feel like an insider growing up, which I think is true of most of us who are storytellers. We do find Mm -hmm. ourselves as outsiders. And there's so many of us now that find ourselves as outsiders. But I didn't feel like I fit in the norm of things. And the place where I felt most at home was was in my summers where I spent time with my grandparents. And my grandparents mm-hmm. were of a different generation. I ha- come from a Jewish heritage and they had friends who were Holocaust survivors and they came together with their friends every summer in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts where uh, the Boston Symphony spends their summer. And I Mm. spent every summer there from when I was three until I was 18. And there were so many unlearnings in that time for me if Mm -hmm. I think of them as such. But there was also the ability to see myself or feel myself as something worthy and special. So in suburban New Jersey, where I grew up, I just didn't feel like I fit in and yet in this other place where there were women with hairy armpits and people pursuing their dreams and this different generation who listened to NPR over dinner and read books and had this different intellectual passion. um, There was something that felt at home and I would wait every school year. The last day of school, then I'd be all packed and ready to mm-hmm. go that very next morning to be driven the five hours to Massachusetts. And I wouldn't come home until the very day before school started because it was the home of my heart. And I think mm-hmm. that really shaped as well as my grandparents, particularly my grandmother mm-hmm. shaped um, who I became, who I've become.
0: hmm. I I think that's really interesting so it's like at a young age you're straddling two worlds one that felt it seems like I'll use the word suffocating and maybe New Jersey you didn't feel at home in your own body in your world and then this this place the Berkshires which um, has definitely its own culture and way of being um, which was like an escape for you but also like a homecoming at the same time which is really beautiful and what would you do in the Berkshires in the summers like what was life like for you then?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was really interesting because I don't even know that I would have thought of that other time as suffocating. I just thought I, I mm-hmm. was wrong. Like I saw it as me, mm-hmm. not um, as the environment. I couldn't identify that yet. And I think that... Um, What really, there was a freedom in the time in Massachusetts, there was a connection with other kids. And one of the moments that I actually remember the most, and and I do want to talk about my grandmother, because she she really saw me. And I think having that one person in your life, who's not holding you to an expectation, but who you Mm -hmm. really feel like sees through all the shields and sees you was pivotal for me. But there was a moment. We would go to the lake every day, all the friends would meet up and my friends were kids whose parents were in the symphony. And so we would go to the lake during the days. I would babysit. I'd play my violin. And I had an amazing violin Mm -hmm. teacher. And we'd go hang out at night together as friends, play cards. There wasn't any media at all. No television, no watching movies, no phones. Or we'd hang out at Tanglewood where the Boston Symphony spends. I mean, it was incredible. But I remember I'd walk home from the lake every day, and I would have to walk along this road and then up this hill to my grandparents' funky little cottage. And I remember walking home one day, my towel over my shoulder, my flip flops, and thinking like, wait a minute, my friend's parents do what they love for a living. Like, not Mm. just like they love their work, but they're musicians for a living. And there was something, it was one of those moments for me where I saw possibility in a way that I had never dreamt of because what was laid out for me was a very different path of how you become who you are.
0: Right. I think um, a lot of people can resonate with that. It sounds like you had this like unlearning, uh, sort of like slow unlearning. And it actually happened in a moment of like insight and joy, which I think is really beautiful because like, again, sometimes unlearning is harsh. It happens through trauma and divorce and loss. and, And that's, you know, part of it. But I I like these moments, too. I can just picture you like walking down the street with your towel over your shoulder, like light bulb moment. Like I can actually have the life that I want, whatever that is. Um, So where do we go from there? What what happens after this this pivotal moment? How do you kind of traverse like the teenage years and young adulthood? Not gracefully.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Did not gracefully. Years. Yeah, yeah. Well, bounced around I think there were expectations and uh, living up to certain standards, and where I would go to college and what that would look like. And college, I studied industrial design at Carnegie Mellon mm-hmm. University. It was a very hardcore education. So I remember thinking if you slept more than four hours a night, you were slacking off. It was very competitive. And in my junior year, I stumbled upon a book by Victor Papanek, and he Mm -hmm. wrote a book um, called uh, Design for the Real World. I think it was written in the 1960s. And it sort of woke me up to questioning. And what I mean by that is he was looking at our responsibility, our social responsibility as designers, that Mm -hmm. we have a social responsibility, that we are actually creating the artifacts that shape society. And we should be questioning what we leave behind. And that kind of was another one of those moments for me of taking off the rose-colored glasses of just doing what I was supposed to do and asking, why am I doing this? And why are we not talking about this? Why are we not mm-hmm. looking at it through this lens? And so I began a quest of questioning, of asking the questions, of wondering why. and. That led me to leave Carnegie Mellon, which was kind of unheard of, you know, when you're in such a competitive program, if you're not kicked out, you stay.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how did your family take that?
1: (laughs) No, that was not a good thing. So I kind of, joke that I, um, you know, challenged them saying I was going to go live on a commune. And then that didn't go over well. So I I went as a visiting student (laughs) to a more (laughs) academic school, no organic farming and commune living. Um, But I went to a more academic school, I went to Reed College in Portland Mm -hmm. for a year. And again, I started to see things through a new lens that hadn't been, I hadn't been exposed to. There was more of an academic, philosophical, sociological bent. These were people studying more classic
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, academics. And that, right. again, was a wake up for me.
0: It sounds like there's been and this is like not unique to you. It's everyone's journey, right? Like sometimes we have to unlearn things multiple times, like again and again and again. And I think that might be nice for people to hear, especially from someone as successful and um, forward thinking as you. Um, But I want to take a second and go back to grandma. Um, Did we get a chance to cover all of that you wanted to share about grandma and her influence on you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to even, she died when I was in college. So when I was just 18, but the impact that she had on my life and my sense of self, and again, you know, I know we'll probably get into Isamu and the loss of my Mm -hmm. husband Mm -hmm. nearly 19 years ago. Yeah. Yeah this idea that somebody can bring out the best in you and that there is a recognition that that is you that when they bring out the best in you or see the best of you that you take that moment to go wait a minute if they saw that if they brought that out in me i've got that Mm -hmm. in me and how do i live Mm -hmm. that and I always just felt that with her. I felt special. I felt seen. And it was a deep seeing, like I was saying, like through the masks that we may wear through what I was supposed to be to some core.
0: It sounds like from it sounds like on every level, you felt really safe with her. And in a way that maybe you didn't have with other people, a deeper relationship, which is beautiful. And you're right. You just, you just need one person just like that to kind of make you come alive. I kind of think of it as like, I think everyone just needs one person to reflect again, like you're saying who they really are just by another set of eyes, another being just being like, I see you like it's okay. Like you'll find your way. Eventually you'll become who you're supposed to be. And it sounds like you had that in her, um, which is beautiful. So, I have a question. You're, you're a questioner, you're a seeker. Um, but I know that you had great influential people in your life growing up. And I know that there are some things from your childhood, I'm sure that remain true that are like still like a learning that are like through and through decade after decade. This is still a true concept that I live in, and sort of believe in. So I'm curious, like what's a learning that you carry with you? Um, that's tried and true.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to that moment with the towel over my shoulder, really that we can Mm -hmm. be what we're most passionate about. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. And by that, I don't mean it takes a lot of effort. I mean that it could require a lot of those stumbles and unlearnings and becomings, And, you know, you mentioned like, we become who we become, it feels like it's a constant becoming. And I I think Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. one of the biggest, um, biggest recognitions that and I don't know where it came from, Melissa. But I think just that idea that like, oh, we're here again. Oh, Mm -hmm. this is again, Mm -hmm. like those Mm -hmm. learnings aren't one and done. And now I've made it, or now I know who I am, that Mm -hmm. it's, it's, this is life that we get to continually unwrap that wrapper and become more and more if we take that opportunity. Um, But I think there was something in there that resonated for me more than almost anything else in that moment that you said was joyful and glorious. It was because it was like, Oh, we get to on whatever level we get to be or do something we love.
0: I love the language we get to. I just think, um, I I think that's such a, it's, it's language to me that just sort of like speaks from the soul and it's like you know, this is like, it's almost like you at that age being, I think you said you were 12 years old going down the the road with the Probably, towel over your yeah. shoulders. 12 or 13. <laughs> and it's like, you had this moment of like, oh, I, I get it. Right. And like, you know, and you've had to get it many, many times, decade after decade. Um, I have a question for you though, personally, isn't it kind of fun being a human? Like decade after decade, you're like, oh, again, this thing again, like, oh, this is crazy and gnarly, but still got to go through it. Like again, like I think it's, it's getting more and entertaining as i get older i don't know if that makes sense to you but uh, that's, that's how true. i feel about it.
1: Yeah. No that's a good way of looking at it. I think it's fun, it's funny, it's humorous, it's challenging. Like it's almost like there's yeah. these little um uh fairies or something poking at us all the time going, "Ha ha, again, you're yeah. going to learn this again yeah uh, and again." Yeah. And you thought you got that? <laughs> again.
0: Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorite things I'm just starting to notice lately is I'm taking stock and interviewing amazing humans and having these conversations. I'm like, oh, these things just keep going. And I, I wonder what I'll be unlearning and learning at 60 and 70 and 80. I mean, you know, if I'm blessed to do that. So, um, so you're in this space, you have, you went to Reed College, another world of thinking and philosophy and academics is sort of like broadening your horizons, um, And then, and then what, what then, where are you in your early twenties and how do you begin to, and and where is storytelling and writing? I know you, you're a writer at your core. So where is this in like your, your growing up?
1: Yeah, it took a long time to get to the writer and the storyteller. And, um, it took a long time to get to this path. It wasn't a straight trajectory, which I'm grateful for. I think that, um, the way I bring together different modalities and think almost like a Renaissance person through like mm-hmm. what, what does actually come together and how do these things make sense. And when I think about what interests me, it's not just like science and nutrition, it's really sociology and social impact and social justice and storytelling and all the things that come together. But I was far from what I do. Today, um, I mm-hmm. was an artist, so I was studying industrial design and art. Mm-hmm. I ultimately finished at Carnegie Mellon. Not after I moved to Hawaii and lived in a tiny wooden shack with my best friend from high school, with no running water Amazing. or electricity, for nine months. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> she good for still you. Still lives
1: there <laughs> in the shack. In, in the, the shack, same shack.
0: She, oh. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was like Andrea, you might have to have an intervention with your friend because we got to go get her. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know that's like 30 years ago. Um, yeah, I lived uh, in, I moved to Hawaii, I knew I wanted to unlearn, I knew I wanted to yeah. shift the paradigm. And mm. I wanted the internal game, not the external game. So the reason I chose Hawaii and it was Maui was mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be confronted with a new language and a whole different culture, but I wanted the time and the space to learn more about me. and. Uh, Mm -hmm. I spent that time that nine months I worked, uh, as on a flower farm and then I worked for a carpentry. I mean, this is like totally not related to Um, nutrition. Nobody asks me these questions, Lisa. Um,
0: (laughs) It's amazing. I I just think there's some through line through all of this. And I think everyone needs to know this about you. It makes all of it even more powerful what you do now. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so it was not, I was still really focused on making visual art. And that was Mm -hmm. my focus when I returned and I moved to uh, Portland and then to San Francisco. Uh, So in San Francisco, I was very focused on my art career and doing installation work and Mm -hmm. finding both grants for money and spaces to show and working in a cafe in the Castro, where I met, mm-hmm. Isamu, um, mm-hmm. which was a very funny place to meet. Um, mm-hmm. And ultimately, career wise, so many other things happen. But career wise, I recognized that I was nearly making work for a very limited population, that the people mm-hmm. who interact with installation art are, it was basically making art for artists and that wasn't what I wanted. So I had to think through, um, how do I want to make an impact and what is it I do best? And I wasn't at Mm -hmm. storytelling yet. I was at synthesizing information, taking research and putting things together in a way that I communicated in my specific way. That's what I did because mm-hmm. even with my installation art, I was constantly researching, putting ideas together and putting them out in the world mm-hmm. in a specific way that I created with my hands. So mm-hmm. I thought it was gonna be a uh, documentary filmmaking. I was like, that's where I can make a bigger impact. And I wow. signed up for a news writing class And Mm -hmm. I never thought of myself as a word person. I thought of myself as a visual artist, um, which you can see in my work, but I I think it's often humorous for people to think like, I didn't think of myself as a word person and I didn't think of myself as a science person um, because that's now what I might be seen as. But I started that news writing class and, the page just expanded for me and mm-hmm. i realized wait a minute i can create space and form and emotion in all the ways i did in a room in an installation mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. words and so mm-hmm. i started to develop this love for words and the page and really started studying um, writing and how things came across in writing, particularly nonfiction writing. And that was my Mm -hmm. focus. Uh, besides working, I, I started working in book publishing first, just unpacking boxes. That was my first job.
0: <laughs> I love all of your careers and jobs. I also think that that should still be on people's like portfolios and CVs because like there's a lot there. Um I just feel like I want to go back to your move to Hawaii and then ultimately to San Francisco, the pursuit of something else, the always this sort of itch and desire to question and to like see what else is there. And I think um, I just finished reading a book by Lynn Twist called The Soul of Money. And she ta- she's really challenging as I don't know. Have you read that one yet? Or, I haven't. No. Oh, uh, it's. Just the best. Um, She talks about changing the dream, and what she's referring to is like the dream of like consumption and like consumerism and like finances in America. So if we change our dream, we actually have a very different set of values and like behaviors. And it feels like from a young age, you were changing the dream. You were like, "Mm," like cool, not going to go to this school and like comply to this, and I'm not going to like necessarily feel not safe or like comfortable in my body with, with this community, I'm going to wait for the Berkshires to really blossom. And so I feel like you were on this cusp your whole life of like, just patiently waiting, almost like a hummingbird, like, okay, okay. Like it's my time and I'm going to, you know, execute and create. And I just want to give you that reflection because that's kind of like what I'm feeling as I'm listening to your story, which a lot of it, by the way, is still new to me. I've known you for a long time, but I still don't. I don't know all these jobs you've had. I don't know all these things. So this is great. I Um, I know I was hand truck girl
1: in publishing. That was my first job. We called it hand truck girl. I walked around with the hand truck
0: and Undid oh my the proofs, gosh.
1: Kirby.
0: <laughs> There's a whole world for you. I, you, you, I, I know you're in the works with, cre- with creative stuff, but please keep writing and please write this memoir. Um, I also just want to say too, that like, I love that you started out more in this visual space and you mentioned that you had this desire to have a bigger impact. I'm curious where this desire to have a bigger impact came from, um, if it came from anywhere, sort of innate in you, or is there was there this sense of like I have to accomplish this, and and why was that?
1: Yeah, I think it was less about what I wanted to accomplish externally mm-hmm. as the feeling I had internally for those that might not have the same assets or resources. I think um, Mm -hmm. the social impact probably came from more of an empathy Mm -hmm. place than a drive. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I knew how or where it would manifest. And I don't know that I know how or where it'll manifest now. I know how Mm -hmm. I get to exercise that muscle, but I'm constantly learning new ways to exercise that muscle. But I I do think it was something in me that just felt and maybe felt more sensitively, which maybe is what Mm -hmm. made me weird or uh, other as a child. Um, I used to have these, I'm going into all. Go, go, (laughs) go. Please go. I used to have this, you know, my like people had like imaginary friends. I had like Mm -hmm. imaginary orphanages. Like I just had this like idea that like I was taking care of these people, Mm. their children that um, were Mm. didn't have all the assets or resources or um, privileges that I had. So there was something driving me in that way. Um, And it didn't get fostered, I don't think um, there was anything really feeding it in my, in my life that I can point to. So when,
0: when you think about relationships too, like friendships growing up or relational, like um, family relational relationships, um, were you, were you sort of like the nurturing caretaking type? Were you the person that was sort of able to support people or was it not really safe for you or comfortable
1: yeah, it was definitely, I, I was, I'm not a, the dominant one in my family. I tend to be quiet and shy, which is, you know, ironic in my leadership role mm. in my business and in my work. That was something that I think was innate to me, but I didn't have access to and wasn't being fostered because I was in the shadow of my big sister who's much more of an external Um, extrovert personality. Um, And I I think I had a a magnetism that I can look back on that people were drawn to me and felt taken care of in my Mm -hmm. space, but not in that overarching or or typical nurturing way. It was much Mm -hmm. more internal and the word that keeps coming to mind is sensitive. I think it was Mm -hmm. almost like a, um, like a open, uh, I don't want to say a wound, but I think it was like something there that I was working with and maybe just the expanse of the heart that I didn't Mm -hmm. know what to do with just
0: yet. Just yet. Just yet. But you did. (laughs) Yeah, and you did. And you have... Would you say that, um, what you're sort of describing in terms of like, um, being a more sensitive, but yet also people were drawn to you in some way. Um, would you say that was part of like a superpower you had, like, if you had to name a superpower that you had growing up that you didn't maybe verbalize or like show, but you just had it looking back. Cause you can see it looking back. Yeah. Do you feel like that was an element of that, a superpower for you? Yeah, it's
1: an interesting question. And, um, you know, I've done so much work and self-development and growth in my adult life, especially after losing my husband. And uh, I know, you know, I love the Chinese five elements. And that theory has really helped me to understand some of myself, but also what you're referring to as that superpower. So in the five elements, you have a constitutional factor or a CF. And we all have that place where like in functional medicine or functional nutrition, you have an innate ability to come into your healing, you have an innate constitutional factor. And mine is Mm -hmm. the heart protector, And so it's fire and that fire can burn, but that fire can warm and that Mm -hmm. fire is powerful and it's also comforting. And I've just learned that um, in that way, people might be drawn in in ways that I could not like I don't even think I could. I certainly couldn't identify, but I think I didn't even identify with it. So I didn't have a sense of self of right, people right. want to be around me or people are drawn mm-hmm. to me or I have a magnet to, like,
0: yeah, I, yeah, that
1: was not my sense of yeah. self at all. Yeah, And that's helped me to understand it a little bit, which is a great
0: tool. Hmm. Um, I think they're not alone in not being able to access it with words or awareness in the moment. I think that, again, part of this growing up and this unlearning of what the world told us to be or how we should be is, is you know, before we can unlearn, we have to learn. We have to learn who we were yeah. and how, how we showed up and how that affected people and how it did and how it affected us and our you know, uh, maturation. And I think that, you know, I, I resonate, um, from what I know about you with like the sense of, um, heart protector and fire, um, and, and the energy that you bring to all that you do. Um, and so I'd like to go into, I, I feel like as we're going through this story of your life and it's a beautiful story, by the way, um, thank you so many, ch- <laughs> so many chapters, so many cool moments here. I, I want to get to where you're in, uh, the Castro and you meet a Samu and tell us how life uh, shifted for you in those days.
1: Yes, many other stages of unlearning. and again, like I'm, because of what we're talking about, and because it's you and your community, I'll be fully transparent that at yeah. that time of meeting Isamu, I was in a relationship with a woman, a long term relationship, and um, didn't expect to meet a man that swept me off my feet yeah. and confused me and <laughs> made mm-hmm. me think differently about myself. And that journey also was one I had to go through. Like I had mm-hmm. to unlearn some things about identity and sexuality yeah. and, uh, there actually wasn't any better place to do it than
0: in San Francisco, in
1: (laughs) in the Castro, in the LGBTQ community, which was not called that at the time, Um, but a place where things were being discussed more openly. And there were conversations and dialogue that, again, we had to unlearn from what culturally was accepted. But it really Struck me like Isamu took my breath away, like from the Mm -hmm. first moment, there was something between us. And I had to reckon with that in myself, Mm -hmm. because I had built an identity that was not permitting myself (laughs) to be attracted to him. Um, And it took us nine months. I mean, it was a beautiful courtship, because it was allowed to be that. And he too had the sense that he was so attracted to me, but that I was inaccessible to him Mm. for reasons of identity. And Mm -hmm. it it just was a, like a beautiful um, period of time of really kind of finding each other. By the time we were together, we were completely enamored and in love with each other, which is a very Mm -hmm. rare opportunity um, in our generations. So Mm -hmm. uh, really just beautiful love story and becoming to, you know, the relationship that we had. Um, And we worked together in that cafe in the Castro uh, for Until I left to work in publishing to become Hand Truck Girl. And then he Mm -hmm. left to pursue a first career in Mm -hmm. software development. And our lives changed pretty drastically after Mm -hmm. that, Um, but all together and all growing and all questioning.
0: So I have a couple of questions for you. Thank you for the share and the vulnerability here. Um, This is also often something people don't share. People are often in heterosexual relationships and then they have to come out and it's this huge, scary, unwelcomed thing. And um, that's what I went through in my early 20s was like, oh, my God, like. I'm either not going to have a family or I'm going to have a family and I don't know how they're going to take this. Um, but right. I also can understand the reckoning with identity on either and um, all areas of the spectrum because it's it is fluid and it does change um, for, for some people, not everybody. But I would say, like, did you fight it? Were you like, wait, like, get this out of this guy's great. He's beautiful. But were you kind of resistant? Like you said, nine months, were you yes. resisting for nine months or?
1: yes. I was definitely yeah. trying to find within myself how this could be because I was I was right. attached to yeah. an identity that Um, had served me. That identity had Mm -hmm. served me in many ways. That relationship wasn't healthy, but the unlearning, the questioning, the way it impacted my artwork, the research Mm -hmm. that I did, I loved looking at uh, relational and gender dynamics from the 1930s and 40s and how -hmm. that played out in Um, in lesbian culture in particular. And there was something that allowed me through that experience to reclaim my idea of feminine, which at that time was more permissible in the lesbian culture than it was in straight culture. So to be femme And to own it and to still have that be strong and powerful was something I needed to come to because it felt more resonant to me. Like you can be a powerful, badass, totally feminine woman. And that's more acceptable now in all cultures. But at that time, you know, in the eighties, it was not as, I I didn't Mm. feel like I could be that female, um, and straight and accepted, like it was seen as potentially negative. And I couldn't find a male counterpart who could be, um, I'm just going to say boy or man or butch enough. Right. And Isama wasn't a funny package for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you, <laughs> so when you were, so you're resisting because you found this world and you felt safe in this world and this relationship. And and I really resonate with that too. Like there's a whole community of people I have because I'm in the yes. LGBTQ space. I have uh, people who know me in ways that my family never will. And that's okay. Right. And, and so you just you have a whole world that you get welcomed into, and in that world there's also power structures and dynamics and labeling and even now these days it's like it's its own world in it that way. But when you were when you met Asamu, you were kind of resisting um, for nine months. Did you feel scared to lose that power, that voice, that sense of confidence that you worked to build? Absolutely.
1: I mean, I actually remember the first time we were walking down Castro Street and he took my hand mm-hmm. and we were holding hands and I was nervous about, you know, being seen holding hands yeah. <laughs> yeah. with a man. Um, yeah. Yeah but it all felt so right. So it was again, like a coming together of the mind and the heart. And sometimes mm-hmm. our heart knows what's right. And our mind has to catch up. And sometimes it's the other way around. I mean, sometimes we have to say like, I know this is right, but I can't I can't let go yet or i'm not there yet so yeah, i think it's yeah. that syncing up of our our heart and our mind that um takes some trust and also some questioning and is a process and there's value that you said, in that
0: process and that journey Right. I also want would love for you to speak. I mean, you're you're speaking to it now, but I just I I feel very passionately that you know unlearning is not an intellectual thing. It's not something you can get. You can read like we I think we know this, but you have to go through it. Sometimes it takes you years to unlearn a construct or an identity or a career, and sometimes people don't unlearn, and that's okay. That's their life journey too. But like, I, I just want people to kind of understand that that it's like it's an unraveling. It takes months and years, and it's icky and sticky. Um. But it is this sense of, I love what you said, you said a sinking of the heart and the mind. Um, and it sounds like you were kind of being nudged by the universe and by Usamu for nine months. And so take us to life with Asamu and what did it bring for you and your, your development?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was so... So it was such an awakening. And um, if I go back to that sense that I had with my grandmother, there was Mm -hmm. something with Isamu that just felt right. And the way I can think about it now, and again, these are the words of hindsight, um, are that I'm not an easy person to take care of. I think even in that sensitive, vulnerable place of my childhood, nobody quite knew how to wrap their hands around me. And I have Mm -hmm. a very loving family. I'm here in my mom's place right now Mm -hmm. and didn't lack for love, but I don't know that it touched me where I needed to be touched. And Isamu knew how to take care of me. And that wasn't in a, you know, financial or I hold you when I cry. It was meeting me just the way I needed to be met and moving into this space that just felt, um, I I don't, I I don't even, I don't know that I felt anything ever like it or have again. And I just feel the gift of having felt that connection, that human connection, that deep sense of, um, you know, when we would see each other, even after years of dating in San Francisco, Mm. down the street, when we'd be meeting each other, it was like, my heart was two blocks away. And... We would just Mm -hmm. lock eyes and be able to be in this shared space together. Um, And, you know, was it all perfect? No, we had our challenges. Of course, it was five years together of moving in and moving places and having very busy, hectic lives in San Francisco, building careers, me moving away from Hand Truck Girl into Mm -hmm. becoming a production director, and him really riding the dot-com wave and all the pressures of that, Um, and finally, you know, uh, him asking me to marry me very traditionally you know, really mm-hmm. needed to do that in a traditional male masculine way, the struggles of trying to get pregnant. So it mm-hmm. was all of that prior to him being diagnosed with a brain tumor when I was just seven weeks pregnant. But it was this five years of, I just feel like exploration of adulthood and loving yeah. and partnership and learning and finding the dynamic that worked for, uh, coupling like that.
0: Hmm. Do you believe that, um, his presence in your life was, uh, it's obviously so profound, you know, you had a family, you had a career, he helped you grow in ways that no one else could help you grow from like a romantic perspective, but do you feel his uh, sort of presence in your life, um, Helped you find a voice you couldn't have found otherwise or with someone else?
1: Yeah, a thousand percent. I mean, the way I always described it is if you think of a ship and there's that like, female figure at the front of a ship <laughs> yeah. that's just out in the wind and the <laughs> sea, but it's anchored by this ship, right? But she's yeah, out there. Yeah. And he yeah. would do these funny things like I started to write and focus not just on my publishing career, but on publishing my own writing. And that was mm-hmm. starting to begin. And I was exploring all this world around I was part of a writing group and formed a reading group for writers where we were studying writing and I would give Isamu my writing to read and he Mm -hmm. would read it and he'd hand it back to me and he'd say, I'm not your audience. Mm. And that was it. And I would be like, but did you like it? And he'd be like, I'm not your audience. But at the same time, he was saying, quit your job, go focus on writing, you can do this. But he wasn't giving me blind platitudes to rely externally on what I could do. By him doing that, it gave me the strength to believe in myself and not be reliant on some reflection. You can, babe, you can do it. You're good. You're really good. It was all about like him being super honest with me. And I think that training, I think of that as some of my training wheels for um, having to survive on my own, be a single mom, build my own business, not constantly be looking for external reflections to validate what I might already have to find within myself, and that is a gift because I think so often we're looking outside of ourselves for that validation
0: I love this um I love this evolution of you and his role in your life, um him saying, "I'm not your audience," and you having to take it, but then also again, him in the background absolutely cheering you on and supporting you like to to pursue that next step in your career. I think it's like, you know, he, he was embracing radical candor and he's like, I have no time for ruinous empathy. I'm just going to give you the thing. And you're, you know, it's funny. Cause to me is from what I know of you, like ruinous empathy would never work with, with Andrea. Like I would never even consider it. Like it's just radical candor, yes or no. And like, let's be challenged directly, care deeply, love deeply. Um, and I, it sounds like he was the perfect person for you again, to, to step into your own in your, in your next chapter, your career. Um, so so he gets, uh, uh, brain cancer and, um, yeah. and tell us about how that shifted your focus. You were, you were in, um, in, in the world of, of writing and publications and, um, in, and how did you shift then to the realm that you're in now?
1: Yeah, that didn't happen until after he died in any professional way. Personally, I always had a passion for health and food more than even health. I mean, we had a supper club and we'd meet with friends and it was very decadent. Isamu loved to eat. Mm. Like he loved a really good steak and a glass of port and a cigar. Like he loved really just in the indulgences. He was very sensory, very kind of stoic, um, quiet, person not a lot of extroversion um you waited to hear what he had to say and Mm. when he was enamored with his food it was a beautiful thing I think it was something I always just strived to give him that pleasure and um when he got sick I just started researching and again I'm seven weeks pregnant How did things change? Like, whoa, shift of perspective, like seven weeks pregnant, I'm all caught in my morning sickness and how horrible Mm -hmm. that feels. You get a brain tumor diagnosis, morning sickness feels like, okay, whatever. I'm a little nauseous, right? Like it goes away. It was amazing what kind of, um, you know, those visuals where you have like the same color on two different backgrounds and they look Mm -hmm. like really different colors. It's like that experience where it's the same sensation with two different backgrounds. So um, I really just shifted everything while still working in book publishing to focus on what else could we be doing? What were the ways we could be addressing his cancer? In addition, it was the yes and that I teach into now. Yes He did all sorts of chemotherapy. Yes, he had two craniotomies. Yes, he had radiation therapy. Yes, yes, yes. And we did everything we could because he was given about six months to live. And he lived two and almost two and a half years. So we put all that into action, but it wasn't, it was years later still. That I recognized this is my calling. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's mm-hmm. only now that I'm going to say to you, Elisa, this is what I'm supposed to be doing now, right? That yeah. there's still yeah. evolution. It's not, it's never done.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, this story, every time I hear this story, it's always both beautiful and in some ways new for me. I, you know, your meeting and your. Uh, courtship was new to me in that way, knowing all the details and also knowing, um, how you grew side by side with him, um, is really beautiful. And it's of course, heartbreaking. Um, as you think about, you know, your life as an educator and as a teacher, um, I think as I'm hearing your story, it was kind of there all along first in the visual arts, then in like starting to get a sense of like, um, Challenging the status quo and challenging gender norms and sexuality. Um, but as you meet him, it's like you're, it's like you're, you're being born again in a new way. Like you get a new chance at life, but also you're carrying with you all of these incredible tools and incredible skills that uh, your grandma and other key people help foster for you. Um, and so as you get into this now, you're like, I'm going to start to really harness this to make some sort of beauty out of this mess. Um, how did you begin to make the beauty out of the mess after Isamu passed in his two and a half year fight? Yeah,
1: yeah I don't I don't know that it was that conscious um, yeah. that it was making beauty out of the mess. And I, I also I never thought I would get an Isamu, right? Like I didn't think my life was destined for that. Like sweep me off my feet, love romantic with a man. Like, I just didn't think that was what was coming my way. Um, I, it was really through writing first and foremost, that I started to create the character of us that I started to write who we were. And I, I think in doing that, I was allowed to step out of the scar and a little bit into the wound, which is something that I teach into with mapping a patient's story and that sort of what I call dispassionate compassion. Like how do we step into that place where we actually can have hindsight and vision and um, an idea of where to go. And that's hard to find in the wound. It's very hard Mm -hmm. to find, there's none of that perspective. And so I do think it was the writing. Yeah, and I think this is one of the mistakes that people make all too often uh, in the healing professions, like not stepping back from the wound that the patient or client is in and gaining some of that perspective. Um, But I do think it was writing that led me to that initial place. And then uh, the story is that I had another friend who was a naturopath who was diagnosed with um, colon cancer. And I, went into my researchy thing, doing my thing. Mm -hmm. What foods, how do I help our community to Mm -hmm. help her? Wait a minute, they don't need me. They're all naturopaths. What am I, who do I think I am? But wait a minute, I really wanna learn this. And that Mm -hmm. conflict within myself of I want to help, but I'm not equipped. That led me to the wake up of, I get to, to use that language,
0: change
1: my career, even though I'm a single mom, even though I have a really, at that point, well-established, well-paying career where I work from home as a single mom, even though I get to start all the way back at the beginning because I Mm -hmm. get to do what I love for a living. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it was a real journey. And that journey took a lot of schooling and a lot of studying and a lot of work. Um, but I took that belief in myself.
0: So A, amazing, I love, I get to, I feel like I need to get a tattooed on my body and like written all over because I think <laughs> that's like not only important for like people who are going through health conditions and, and struggles, but um, for all of us again, who are kind of like going through transitional times, which let's face it these days, it's all a big transition. Um, as I think about this story, you know, you said this at some point earlier on in the conversation, you know, you said you were really, you know, empathy-driven um, from a young age. You realized that, that you were heart-centered and you're empathy-driven. Um, it sounds like you took the writing, the the skill that you started to craft, and it helped you find your voice and helped you find some level of healing and peace with this, this loss, this trauma. And it sounds like, you sort of, although you were beginning from the beginning from like an academic perspective and studying, you know, again, your whole story is just building upon each, uh, upon itself. Um, I really think of this as like, you're, you became someone who was, um, you know, empathy motivated, except versus like trauma motivated. So like you said, a lot of people go through something really hard and they don't do the work to yeah. work on themselves, to work to tend to the wound and they become trauma motivated. It ends up bleeding over yes. into their care with the patients or if they're a caretaker, um, this sense of self has to be healed. But um, some of your work, again, some of your most profound work for me has always been um. To show up with not only active listening, but to show up with a presence, to connect the dots, to look to childhood and build this timeline, build this story, this matrix. Um, So you're doing this as you're growing up, though. You're doing this as you're starting a new career and you don't even know you're doing it, but you're doing it. And that's the beautiful thing around it. Um, so, So tell me, though, at this point, what is the biggest thing you had to unlearn as you're stepping into a room? Eventually, you get to a room with doctors and NPs and DOs and you have to... You get to take the mic and show people where to go next. What are you unlearning in those moments when you're, you know, faced with all kinds of hierarchy of academia and all of that? Yeah, it's a huge question and it's so much. I feel like
1: every day it's an unlearning and every experience is an unlearning and you never know what it's going to bring and you will never be prepared. And I think that for a lot of people tend to look at me and think that I'm a perfectionist. And I always say, no, a perfectionist is scared to make a move. Like we mm-hmm. have to make moves. And uh, before we hit record, I think you showed me a post-it that said like mm-hmm. planting the seeds or something like that. It really is about just is that what it says? Did follow I remember the bread, correctly? Follow the
0: breadcrumbs. Follow basically the breadcrumbs. I took yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It could be seeds. It could be great, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, plant the seeds, till the soil. It's actually just one step, then the next step, then the next step. And seeing what comes up and being ready and able to pivot. Um and that's true in every single situation. And for me, those are the most welcome situations when I'm like, mm-hmm. whoops, I got that all wrong, or wow, mm-hmm. there's something for me to learn here. And mm-hmm. there's no way to prepare for it. And, you know, there's an experience I'm having now that brings me to tears every time I work with this. I'm working with a group of transgender practitioners trying to see where does can functional nutrition serve? And the first time I showed up with them, I went into my teacher mentor mode, I'm going to help them. Mm -hmm. And I had to Mm -hmm. really quickly realize, I'm here to be schooled. And that is an opportunity. That is Mm -hmm. not me trying to go but like, I'm supposed to be teaching them, they're going through my program. And each one of those opportunities, when I get that, like, I'm doing it wrong. I need to relearn or unlearn or what led me to believe this is for me the gift that keeps us alive and thinking and ticking. And, you know, it's it's the hardest thing to teach because we're all so caught in a paradigm of healing that's based on what we learned or what we thought we learned that there is a mm-hmm. cure that there is a fix that the mm-hmm. person with the letters after their name knows better than we do ourselves and that we yeah, hand ourselves yeah. over and that all like i've just learned to unlearn that i know yeah. what's going to happen or how it's going to unfold or how i'm going to feel how am i going to feel in that moment and for me um i don't know how i prepared or how i embrace it it just those to me feel like the most exhilarating heartfelt Mm -hmm. like my heart just feels open when I leave for instance the meetings with that group I feel love like I don't often get to feel and Mm -hmm. what a gift it is Mm -hmm. to unlearn
0: I feel like I want to hug you right now again, because I can sense this, this (laughs) core emotion for you coming up. What is the core emotion you feel when you think about these, these practitioners in the trans group for you?
1: Um, It's so funny because I'm a person who, when I think about emotions, I have to get a wheel of them. I'm like, what are the emotions? Because I go to thinking (laughs) before I go to (laughs) feeling. Right. Um, Right. I I think cause I'll say like, I feel open, but that's not an emotion, right? Like I feel love I think is what I feel. Mm -hmm. I just feel the like depth of the experience and the reality that these brilliant people I'm speaking to are willing to share with me Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. um, what's the emotion there for me? It's it's, love. It's, it's love.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, You know, love and joy. I was listening to some podcasts and some of the people who I read around um, sort of emotional agility and um, this whole concept that's sort of like, you know, blowing up in the corporate and medical world right now of how do we be agile with our emotions, which is a very important conversation. Um, And they just keep saying that actually the most vulnerable emotion we could ever feel isn't sadness or anxiety or fear, it's joy. And it's when we feel joy that we are, like you said, open. And anything can happen when we're open. It's why I so people don't want to fall in love. They run away from commitment. There's all these different parallels. But like, to me, when I think about you and your career, and this is why I'm so excited to keep watching and following you and being a friend to you is like, you know, that every chapter, every week, every month, every new course, every new seminar, every new opportunity you put yourself in, you know, you've cultivated, um, you have have a heart of fire, but it's also like just... It's, it's fiery, but it's also full of so much love. And I think that they complement mm-hmm. each other. And so every time you step into a room, you know, yes, you have something to bring, but it's like, you get to be broken open and you're willing to be broken open. Most people, Andrea, are not willing to be broken open. They're willing to be closed. Yeah. They wanna be right. They wanna have the mic. They wanna just keep going. And I think that's what makes you an incredible human. And of course, uh, you know, professional and yeah. everything that you do. I feel like you kind of answered my last question which is, what is your definition of unlearning?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think unlearning is the best way to, the best path to growth. It's checking our biases. It's recognizing that we thought we knew the answers and we never do. And so for me, unlearning is growth. And I think, as I said earlier, it's life. It's part of the fabric of being and um, tripping blissfully through the challenges and recognizing that they're all opportunities.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it. I think that's a great place for us to come to a full circle here. Um, thank you for your wisdom, your stories, your, the chapters that you shared, the many chapters that you shared. Um, it's been honestly an honor and I know that we'll have many more connections on this planet. So thank you for coming to the school of unlearning. Thank you, Elisa. What an incredible episode with Andre Nakayama. Conversation has given me chills and I want to take a beat to decompress with you. Andre's journey has been nonlinear and yet everything makes sense. The dots connect. Seeking answers, asking questions, and making meaning is part of what has helped Andrea make her way in life, make her way through life, and go on to be one of the more sought after minds in functional medicine and nutrition. Andrea is a challenger, a seeker, and forever a student of life. What I loved most about this conversation was the vulnerability, the courage, and the immense love in which Andrea shared her journey, a journey she never could have envisioned or planned for herself. It seems like each decade of Andrea's life brought her to new places, new cities, new careers, new loves, and also experiencing tremendous loss and hardship. What helped her endure was a belief she forged at a young age. Walking back from the swimming pool with a towel over her shoulders in the Berkshires, she had the sense of, I get to have the life I want. I can be what I'm most passionate about. I hope you enjoyed this episode on the School of Unlearning, and I hope you have the courage to follow the breadcrumbs no matter where they lead you. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast because our learning and unlearning never ends and we don't have to do it alone.